morning, everyone. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community Church, and it is good to be together with you all here. It's beginning to look and feel a little bit like Christmas, and uh, it's good to be warm on the inside, though my hands are a little cold right now still. Uh, online, thank you so much for joining with us as well. Um, before we launch into the teaching time, I just want to let you know about an upcoming event that's really, really, really important and close to my heart. Uh, on January 12th, January 12th, 2023, next year, we will be starting a seven-week course called Christianity Explored. And Christianity Explored is a time set aside where there's a great meal and discussion and a study around three really big, important questions in life. Who was Jesus? What did he do? And why does that matter for me? Now, if you've noticed, uh, Tim and I, when we're teaching, uh, we assume, a lot of the times, we assume that the Bible is true, and we're talking about it as if it is true, because that's what we believe. But there are other times in the Christian life, and as we're exploring the Christian life, where we need to sort of step back and investigate, are these things really true? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really true? And Christianity Explored is an opportunity to do that. If you're in a spot right now where you've maybe been around faith community for some time and you're starting to like the feel of following Jesus, but you, you, you've got some questions, Christianity Explored is a great place for you. If you have some friends that you're talking to about Jesus and they're at that spot where they want to start asking some questions and getting some real answers about who Jesus is and not just Googling them, but having a good meal and good conversation, looking at some of the most important documents in world history, Christianity Explorers for you. And if you're wondering, okay, what's Christianity Explored about? And is it a safe place where I could invite someone that I really care about and love to encounter Jesus and start asking some of those questions? Christianity Explored is a place for you as well. So you can register online at fcchudson.com. The registration is open. We've already got some people who are registering uh, for it. And uh, would you please do that? Again, it starts on, on January 12th, and it's a seven-week course every Thursday for seven weeks. And we would love to have you uh, join me and the team uh, as we host Christian Explored next year. Okay, promotion over. I want to start today with a question. Okay, I just want to start today with a question, and here's the question. Don't, uh, don't shout it out, okay? This is just a reflective question just for you and your own heart. Here's the question. Are you happy? Are you happy? Now, I'm not just asking, do you experience happy times? But are you happy, a happy person. And I'm not just asking question, the, the question about, okay, yeah, do you have happy times, but do you experience a kind of life satisfaction that you are content and you feel what the Bible calls being blessed? Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Is that your experience? I know that's an unfair question to be asking if you're a young parent and you just came here But it's an important question. The reason why it's an important question is that the Bible has a great deal to say about blessing and feeling and experiencing happiness, satisfaction in life. And there's something that we're missing in the culture and also, I believe, in the church about happiness, being blessed, 
by God. See, surveys come back, even, uh, even current surveys, going, having gone through COVID, all that kind of stuff, current surveys come back with, when people are asked, are you happy? The majority of people still say, yes, I am happy. The majority of Americans still say that they are happy. Yet, at the same time, the data is coming back to all kinds of surveys where anxiety, anger, and depression are on the rise. How can that be true? How can that be true? Now, again, there's a sense in which you can experience satisfaction in life and also be anxious. I get that. But there's something, there's something going on. Could it be that we've misunderstood what blessing happiness is and how we actually get it? Some of you are familiar with this quote, but this is from C.S. Lewis, and he articulated it this way in one of his famous BBC talks. He said, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, have you learned how to do that? Would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. See, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not speaking, he says, of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or vacations or occupations. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasped at. In that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality when we get what we hope will bring us it. The spouse may be a good spouse. The vacation may be delightful. It's turned out actually to be a good job. But it, it has evaded us. Do you know what the it is? There's something that you and I long and hunger for and strive for every day. The it. The Bible calls that it. Blessing. And not just experiencing good things in life having a deep satisfaction that you have the favor of the God who made you and loves you. We're all striving for it. One author talks about it this way. By definition, our secular culture puts the most emphasis on the here and now. We think that accruing possessions and accomplishments will bring satisfaction. We assume that if we get a better spouse, a better job, a better income, a better home, then we would feel much better too. Welcome to the St. Croix County. If we take this path, though, we will become, we may become some of society's most productive members, but also some of the most driven. Welcome to the St. Croix County. We go through houses and spouses and jobs and the constant renovation of our lives, reinventing, reinventing, reinventing of our lives. 
assuring ourselves that at this next level, it will finally be there. Now, in the Bible, we have a story of a man named Jacob, who's Joseph's father. And Jacob was a driven man. He was an achiever. He was a striver. He was a deceiver. He was a schemer. He was a liar. He was trying to get it. He was trying to get it. And the ways that you and I are told that we should try to get it as well. Land, spouse, big family, money, income. And he missed for a long time that he already had access to it in a relationship with God. And the story that we're looking at today, Jacob is 147 years old. He's getting ready to die and he's settling some of his affairs and making sure his house is in order before he dies. And in this episode today, Jacob teaches us something about it, about the blessing, the favor of God. What is it? And how do you get it? And how do you live in it? That's what we're talking about today. We're going to be reading from Genesis 48, verses 1 through 20. It's on pages 41 through 42 in the Bibles in front of you, if you'd like to turn there, and then also it'll be on the screens as well. But I recommend that you have text in front of you as we also have some highlighted passages of some key ports as we go through here. But this is Genesis 48, 1 through 20. Just a little bit of setup. If you heard last week's sermon, um, that episode with Jacob and Pharaoh happened when Jacob was 137 years old. We are now reading about a story that happens when Jacob is 17 years older. He's 147 right now. And he's, he's learned even more about who God is in the 17 years between what Tim talked about last week and what we're looking at here today about who God is, which is just a reminder. Until the day that we die and we see God face to face, we're always going to be learning new things about who God is, his beauty, his power, his faithfulness. Verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, which is also the name of, another name for Jacob, then Israel summoned his strength and he sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them, they shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. 
and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, who, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And let them And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, "Not, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you're getting used to reading the Bible, and even if you've been reading the Bible for some time, you recognize that there are some things that happen in the Bible like, what in the world is going on there? It's strange. And it's strange not because these are sort of otherworldly things that are going on. It's strange because actually these are other culturally things that are going on. The people in the ancient world would have known exactly what was going on in this instance, that this is an adoption ceremony. Now, you and I, when we go through adoption ceremonies in the States, we go to the courthouse, and there's a legal proceedings that are going on, but this is a time in the life of Israel where they're just clans and beginning of tribes, and there's no real legal system to appeal to to make a formal adoption, and so this is a formal adoption proceeding here. You can see it even in the... um, in how Jacob addresses Joseph and these two sons. He's like, yes, the question, who are these sons? Even though he can't see very well, he, he knows who the sons are. It's, a, it's an official way of addressing, are the boys here that I'm going to adopt in my presence? It's sort of like at times when I do a wedding and you've got the daughter and the dad coming up here and the mom is sitting here and I say, who gives this bride to be married? I know who's given the bride, mostly. <laughs> but it's the part of the official way in which a covenant 
is being set up. And what Jacob is doing here in this situation is he's taking the two sons of Joseph and he's making them as if they are his firstborn, replacing, in a sense, Reuben and Simeon. This is giving Joseph a double portion of the inheritance. Not only does he have an inheritance as a son, but he also has an inheritance because his sons, Jacob's grandsons, are going to become Jacob's sons. And land is a really big deal. That's what's going on in this situation. But in this adoption ceremony, Jacob is showing us something very important about how you and I get blessing. Not blessing in the sense like what um, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim got, that is blessing of land. It's, it's the blessing of the favor of God. How does it come to us? It comes to us through grace. That's a very important piece of what's going on in the dynamic of this story. So, for example, if you pick up in verse 12, then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself to the face of the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward his, Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near. So Joseph is being really intentional. He knows that Manasseh is the firstborn and the firstborn gets the blessing and he wants to make sure that that blessing goes on Manasseh. But Israel... Jacob knows something better about who God is. So he switches it. See, he knows who's there. He might not be able to see that well, but he knows what's going on. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who's the secondborn. He was the younger. And his left hand, he put it on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And this troubles Joseph, because Joseph, with as much as he knows about who God is and how God redeems, there's still some things that Joseph has to learn that Jacob is going to teach him, and that is that God is a God of grace. And blessing the it that you and I are hungering for and longing for and seeking to achieve only comes by way of grace. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on his head of Ephraim, verse 17, it displeased him. He took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. But Joseph said, and Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. See, there's a rule that was operational in the ancient Near East, and it was the rule, okay, Latin time, primogenitor. Just means firstborn. The rule of the firstborn. The firstborn to a family, especially the firstborn son to a family, inherits everything. He is the steward of the estate. This is one of the reasons why Abraham was so concerned that he didn't have a son, because he had all this land and all this property and all, these, all this stuff, but he didn't have an heir to pass it on to. The rule of primogenitor, the rule of the firstborn. And in the ancient Near East, if you were the firstborn, you got the blessing, you got the favor, you got the inheritance, you got the money of whatever your ancestors built up. And God says, that's not my way. I don't operate by that rule. That's not how I give my blessing. Now, Jacob has learned this firsthand. 
If you remember anything about Jacob's story, Jacob was the younger. He was a twin. He came out second. Esau came out first. And there's been this blessing that God has given to Jacob's ancestors and to him. It began with Abraham. God took Abraham out of being an adulterous people, an adulterous man, of an adulterous person, people, and he said, I will bless you and I will multiply you. Go to where I show you to go. And that blessing, that favor has been passed on from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac passed it on to Jacob, but he passed it on to Jacob because Jacob deceived him. Jacob deceived him. You can read about this in Genesis 27. I highly recommend it. It's very important. We're not going to look at it here, just a summary of the story. Again, there's Esau and there's Jacob. Isaac's getting to the end of his life as well, and he's hard of seeing as well. So we see sort of a repeat of, of Isaac's story and Jacob's. And Isaac's wife, Jacob and Esau's mom, says to Jacob, look, there's an opportunity for you to get the blessing from your father that he's going to give to Esau, and this is how I want you to do it. He's hard of seeing. I want you to make the, the, his favorite meal. I'll show you how to make it, and I want you to take some hair because you're smooth and your brother's more hairy, and he's going to touch you because he can't see you, and I want you to pretend like you're Esau so you can get the blessing, and that's how Jacob gets the blessing from his father. Now, if you were God... God forbid, but if you were God and you saw Isaac giving a blessing, your blessing that you promised to the descendants of Isaac, you saw Isaac giving your blessing to Jacob because Jacob deceived his father, what would you do with your blessing on Jacob? If it were I, I would withhold it. But yeah, whatever. I'm still going to give it to Esau. Nice try, or nice try, Jacob. That's not what God does. God honors the blessing. And he commits himself to Jacob through his whole life. Why? Because God is far more gracious than our sinful hearts can ever imagine him to be. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who Jacob is coming to trust, who's gracious, that we get his favor, not through what we achieve, not through what the culture says we have to have, to be blessed, hashtag blessed. It's through grace. It's through grace. So what's interesting is that the blessing has always been about grace. We lost it as human beings. Genesis 1, God says, I bless you, and he blesses humanity to multiply and fill the earth and rule over things and have dominion, all that kind of stuff. We lose it when we rebel, but God started over again with a man named Abraham. Abraham was an idolater when God called him into relationship with him, had no reason, no basis, no achievement in his life to get the blessing from God, and God just promised it to him. I will give you my favor. And anybody who doesn't favor you, Abraham, I will curse. But anyone who blesses you, I will bless. And I'll give that to your sons. 
from one to another to another to another. Why did Abraham have the blessing? Even though he was an idolater and didn't achieve it. Why did Jacob have the blessing of God, the favor of God, and he deceived to get it? Because God knew that one day, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's great, 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 great grandson would one day be put to a cross and get what they deserved because of their sin so that they could get what Jesus deserves, the blessing, the favor, the presence, the satisfaction in life that God is with me. Ephesians 2 talks this way. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. And what's the fullest expression of the blessing and the favor of God? To be saved. To have heaven to look forward to while we're learning today to trust in his grace. Now this is really, really, really important to keep coming back to. Sometimes, you might come up to me at some time after a service and go like, Porter, why do you keep talking about grace? And I'll just quote Martin Luther back to you. As soon as I'm convinced that we figured it out, I'll stop talking about it. Because grace is so, un, it's so counterintuitive to our hearts. We are achievement-based. Not just in our culture, every culture is like this. We celebrate achievement as a form of trying to get blessing. Now, I love, and I've mentioned this before, I love the, the, the movie Sound of Music. I absolutely love the Sound of Music. There's times when in our past as our family tradition, we listen to the sound of music, we watch the sound of music while, we are, uh, while we're putting up the Christmas tree and putting the lights up and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're singing Edelweiss. I'm totally butchering it. Randy, you can do it better. Uh, we're singing Edelweiss. We're singing dun, 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 dun. You know, we're doing the uh, yodeling, all this kind of stuff. I absolutely love it. Now it's gonna be stuck in your head. Earworm, you're welcome. But there's one song that it's beautiful, but it's so deceptive. It's when Maria and the captain finally realize their love for one another. And this is what they sing to one another. I'll spare you the tune. <laughs> perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Or, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's the logic of the human heart. Not grace. I must do something good to be blessed. It's in a conversation about a year ago now, with some friends, a mixture of Christian, non-Christian friends, and we're talking about stuff, and we're talking about life, and we, we, got, we got deep pretty quick. And I don't always talk about death, so despite what some people might tell you, um, I don't always talk about dying, but it is, a very, it is an important topic. But we were talking about dying. 
And one of the friends there said this. He goes, it's okay. I know where I'm going when I die. And one of my other friends looked at him and said, well, where do you think you're going? I think I'm going to heaven. Okay, why do you think you're going to heaven? Because of the work that I do. I serve people really well. I'm good at my job. I'm comfortable with that. And then inside, I'm going, okay, who's going to speak? <laughs> and it wasn't me. There's another friend who's a Christian, and he just looks at the friend. And he goes, that's not true. That's not how you get into heaven. It's not because of what you have done. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. And that rocked his world. And that small little conversation on a Friday morning led to a year-long conversations where he kept asking some of the Christians in the group, wait, now you're telling me that it's not because of what I do. Yep, that's right. The great news is that it's not because of what you do because then you can't lose it by doing, it, by, by doing something wrong. It's all because of what Jesus has done for you. In the last month, my friend told me, he said, you know, in this last year, I've finally come to realize that it's not, it's not because of what I've done. It's not because of what I do. It's all because of a man who died on a cross one day. Now, he's not said yes to Jesus yet, but he's close. Grace is starting to make sense. Grace is starting to make sense. See, it's right there in our hearts all the time. And this is why we need to keep coming back to grace. I just want to invite you, if grace is a new concept to you, if you think like my friend used to think that I'm in heaven or I will be blessed because I do something or I achieve something or I do what is, uh, or I keep getting more, then I'll be really blessed. If that's how you're living your life, of course you're going to be experiencing more anger, anxiety, and depression because you're trying to achieve something that's received. And if you'd like to know more about that, sign up for Christianity Explored. Talk to me after the service. Send me an email. I'd love to talk to you about those things. But maybe you're telling me now, or maybe you're thinking this like, okay, Tim, yep, yep, I know that, I know that, thank you. Tell me something I don't know. Okay. Again, Martin Luther, I'll stop talking about grace as soon as we all figure it out, which we will when we see Jesus face to face, so we'll keep talking about grace. But here's the other piece. You can tell that you're really starting to be shaped by grace, not simply because you can intellectually say to somebody, well, I'm saved because of Jesus, not because of what I do. That's good. That's a great start. You start to know that you're actually being changed by grace when you start to treat other people with grace. Jacob understood grace. That's why he reversed the roles. He learned through following God and God's persistent pursuit of him that he had blessing from God even though he deceived his dad to get it. And God still showed him favor. And that rocked his world to the degree that he is not going to follow the rule of primogenitor and give the blessing to the firstborn. He's going to reverse it. Has grace transformed you so much that it's the logic of your heart and your relationships? We've articulated here for Faith Community a, a biblical value that we 
really think expresses the biblical teaching of what we start to look like as human beings when grace starts to get into the center of our core of our being and starts to take over and work out. We call it being generous in spirit. This is how we articulate it. We are overwhelmed at faith community that God is patient with a broken world and grateful that he loves us despite our own persistent faults. In our gratitude, we desire to be free of a nature of criticism toward others. Out of humility and self-reflection, we want to give gentleness, kindness, and grace to those who show us their suffering or their sin. We see all that we have as a gift from God and we offer it freely to serve the kingdom. Question, don't answer out loud. Would your friends and family say that you're more characterized by a critical spirit or a generous one? What's behind a critical spirit is achieving to get blessing, not receiving the blessing. There's two other pieces here that I want to talk about regarding this passage and the blessing from God. Because the blessing from God is not just simply having happy times or good gifts in life. It's actually having a relationship with God who is two things to us, primarily two things to us, a shepherd and a redeemer. Notice what Jacob says in verses 15 to 16, how he, how he grounds, how he grounds the, um, the blessing to his new sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Two things that help us experience satisfaction in life, that we know that we are blessed by God and that we walk in that blessing is that we know God to be my, my shepherd and the one who redeems me from evil. And this is very important for experiencing satisfaction and blessing in life. First, it's personal. Jacob moves from the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, to that God who was their God. He's my shepherd. There's a lot of people in the St. Croix Valley. There might be some people here sitting in this, in this auditorium here who are still relying on their parents' faith. You've not made it personal yet. Is God your shepherd? And this is really important for experiencing satisfaction in life. One of the reasons why you and I experience so much anxiety in life is because we feel like we've got to figure it all out. And if we make a bad decision, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And what Jacob is trying to show us and tell us, what the Bible over and over and over again is trying to help us see is that God is and will be your shepherd. You don't have to have your life figured out. He's your shepherd. Another friend I was talking to last month, he is making some major life decisions. And he called me and a couple of their friends together and told us what's going on in his life. And he said, I need help. And I got you guys in the room because I need counsel. Am I making a big mistake? All this kind of stuff. And we just paused and we listened and we asked questions and that kind of stuff. And eventually, we just prayed. And I gave this guy a big hug. And I whispered in his ear, said, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And I don't know what your right decision to make is right now. But this is what I do know. And I know this with absolute confidence. 
if you ask God to be your shepherd and lead you, he will. He will. A friend of mine, this last, her in this last month, I've been working through some things and thinking through some things. And, you know, I'm 50 and I'm trying to look in like, okay, I've got maybe 15, 17 years more of, you know, vocation and then what does life look like and all that kind of stuff. I'm not one of those spots. And a friend of mine tells me on the phone, he goes, you know this, Tim. Tim, you know this, you know this, you know this, you know this. But I'm going to tell you anyway. God is good. And he's your shepherd. You don't have to figure this out on your own. He will lead you. My son Levi is coming home from college. He's home right now for Thanksgiving and Christmas break. He's entering into the second semester of his second year, of, or of his last year of college, and he's, it all dawns on him. Oh, I got to get a job. <laughs> I got to do all this. I mean, it just starts to land on him, and it lands on him hard. My wife and I are talking to him. It's like, this is natural. This is normal. This is a season of life. But we want to really focus on it. Get through all the pleasantries. Oh, it's all going to work out. This is natural. This is okay. It's like, look, 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 Levi, look. There's one thing I know and I'm absolutely convinced of. God is good. And as Tim Prince says, he's not going to play games with you. He will lead you. You don't have to have it figured out so that one day you have a job so that you can take care of me and mom. Because that's what he's thinking. God be praised. You don't have to figure it out. God knows where he's leading you. Psalm 23 is not just for funerals. It's good at funerals. But it's not just for funerals. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for, for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Skipped a little bit there, though. That's satisfaction in life. That's the blessing that we're trying to achieve, that God just says, will you receive it and let me lead you and not believe that I'm going to work you over or play games with you? I'm good. I'm good. There's a lot of intellectual things that you have to get figured out in being a Christian because being a Christian is just very different than especially our secular worldview. But the intellectual things are nothing, I think, compared to the heart-level issues that you and I have to believe God's goodness. We've got to keep telling one another, he's good, he's good, he's good. If you want to understand your own behavior, Tim Keller says, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what it is than we are. That's why goodness of God matters so much. Not only will God lead you, but there's one other piece, and I'll close this way before we sing. Not only will God lead you, the other thing that Jacob says 
is that God is the one, he says, the angel who redeems me from all evil. The angel who redeems me from all evil. Now, the angels, the angel of the Lord, are representative of God. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we could talk about regarding the angel of the Lord. But the, he, when he's saying the angel of the Lord re- redeems me, he's talking about how God, through the angel of the Lord, redeems me from all evil. And that is so important to see. Because we tend to think, again, the logic of our hearts is the logic of achievement, that if I'm doing something good, I should get blessed. And if something bad comes into my life, it must be because I'm cursed, because I did something bad. And that messes Christians up all the time. That achievement logic, that moral achievement logic is the logic of Job's friends. Job, you lost everything. You must have sinned somehow. And God keeps saying no. He was blameless. There's something else going on here. And one of the things to remember, to bring into our hearts, and to encourage one another with, is that when evil comes into our life, and it will. God will redeem it. No evil is ever wasted in God's world. He will redeem it. And this is so important to hear because evil will come into our lives and God will not always keep us from doing evil things. But that doesn't mean that life is over. It means that God is beginning to redeem with power, with power. Tim Prince has been rightfully emphasizing Romans 8.28 in this series, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. That's been twisted at times to say, well, if it's bad, well, God must think that it's good if it's coming to his life. No, 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 no. Or, or you can't call something evil, evil when it comes into your life because God's sovereign and God's providential. No, 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 it's still evil. But God promises that whatever wickedness, whatever evil comes into our lives, he will force it to do good. Force it to do good. That's the story of Joseph and Jacob. Forcing. Because God is favorable to them. So favorable that he's going to force whatever happens to them that's under his providential purview to do them good. This doesn't take the pain away. This doesn't mean that we don't grieve deep, profound losses. But this inserts hope and favor and blessing into our trauma. God will redeem it. Tim and I both really admire Corey Tenboom. And I won't speak, to him, speak for him about why he admires Corey Tenboom, but I'll just give you a little example as to why I care so much about Corey Tenboom. She was a woman who uh, was great courage and great bravery, uh, great hospitality. Um, they, she and her family um, helped protect um, Jews against the, the Nazis. She was eventually brought into Ravensbrück, and she made it through, though her dad and her sister died in Ravensbrück, one of the death camps. And one of the reasons why I love the story of Corey Tenbo is because in the worst possible of human experiences, a Holocaust, God's blessing was there. She had favor with God in a death camp. And if God can do it there, he can do it in my life.
He can do it in your life. He can bless you in the most horrific of circumstances. You can know his favor, his provision, his watchful shepherding care in the worst of all circumstances and not have to go, oh, I need to do life better now because this evil's coming to my life. No. God will do the redeeming. We do the trusting. Now, like I said, one of the most difficult things I think, and I could be wrong, one of the most difficult things I think for the human heart to really come to grasp with is that God is good and he blesses us. And he wants to bless us and do us good. And it's for receiving, not achieving. And one of the ways in which you and I can help one another to take that in is by singing about it to one another. The Apostle Paul talks this way in Ephesians 5. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in, the, uh, melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, a lot of the songs that we sing here at Faith Community Church are songs that we're directing towards God. God, uh, come now, long expected Jesus. We're, we're singing to God. But there are other songs that we have here at Faith Community where we sing to one another in the presence of God, about God. And it's designed to help us be instructing one another and encouraging one another, challenging and comforting one another in our hearts. And the song, The Blessing, is one of those songs. And the application today, at least in this moment from this sermon, I think is this. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing in just a moment. And we're going to sing The Blessing together. And what I want you to do is two things. Sing pleadingly to the people around you. Even if you don't sing well, I don't care. We'll turn up the volume. Sing pleadingly to one another. God is for you. God is for you. And as you're singing pleadingly to the people around you in the presence of God, I ask as well that you would also open up your ears and you would open up your heart and you would receive what everybody else is singing to you around you, that God is for you. His favor is not earned by us. It's earned by Jesus. We receive it and live in it. We don't achieve it. It's already been achieved. And there's nothing we can do to turn God's favor away. Once he puts it on you, the trick is will you believe it and live in it. You stand now and pray for us before we sing. Thank you, God, for your mercy, your goodness, your kindness, your steadfast love. Thank you for this time to be together. And I ask for your spirit to move. We, we desire, as Paul says, to be spirit-filled and to be spirit-filled right now, singing a song to one another about your goodness and who you are. Would you, spirit, please move and work and bring this truth deep into our hearts. Reshape us by your grace, just like you did, Jacob. May our strivings and, and, and drivenness, may it cease because we have you and you have us. In Jesus' name.